All right, open your Bibles with me to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. This is the third message, Sunday morning message. We've done some things on Sunday nights, but this is our third message on why believe. And the reason that we are dealing with this subject is we live in a time when there are a group of people called the New Atheists that have really um, taken the Western world by storm. There are so many people who think that now it is unreasonable to believe in God, that it's unreasonable to believe that truth exists or that truth can be known. And people like Richard Dawkins and uh, Christopher Hitchens, who has passed away now, and Sam Harris and Michael Shermer and others who they really push this idea of atheism. Um, on television, uh, men like uh, John Stossel or Greg Gutfeld, there are people that are very winsome, and we agree with so many of their ideas, but when it comes to absolute truth, they are complete skeptics, and when it comes to God, they would call themselves atheists. And so we want to be able to answer these things. So young people, this is what I'm trying to accomplish for you. You're going to meet people who think that they have really good arguments against the existence of God or against the existence of absolute truth. From this series and the other teaching we've done, I want you to know that they don't, that we can answer any argument that they have. We can answer any argument that they have. I also want to say this. Some people will be listening to this online or through a CD or something. And that is that these are not original ideas from Jim Alter. You know, I've studied this stuff for 30-some years. Um, I have very little that's original. You know, they say that if you steal from one source, it's plagiarism. If you steal from many sources, it's research. And so I've stolen from many sources. Some of the things that I've used would be um, the book by Norman Geisler and... Um, Frank Turek called God Doesn't Believe in Atheists. I'll use some of that material. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. And then another book, Stealing from God, that Frank Turek did. And then the work that Ravi Zacharias, many of the works that John Lennox have done, um, some C.S. Lewis stuff, and uh, Francis Schaeffer. And then you can just go on and on and on. I mean, there's so many things. Albert Moeller. So what I'll do at the end of this series is I'll, I'll put together a list of resources if you want to dig in a little deeper and do a little bit more research yourself so that you can trace these things down. Um, I would hate, because I'm, I'm going to be reading some things today directly from I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, and I don't want you all to think that I am plagiarizing from that work. But uh, this is such a fun subject. I don't know, how many of you enjoy this kind of stuff? I just love it. How many of you would rather that I move on to a book of the Bible and just, just go on? Look, nobody raised their hands. Praise. Oh, Andy joins back there. And he... All right. Um, so I, I just love this kind of stuff. And what I love for you young people is it's really cool to have solid arguments against what they have done. So this morning, so the, our, our first message was, is truth knowable? Is truth knowable? The second was, does God exist? Today, are miracles possible? Are miracles possible? And like we did last week, I want to start with the Scriptures and look at what the Bible says about miracles, and there's so much. We'll just deal with some things from the Gospel of John, and then we'll finish up in the book of Acts at the end of the message. But look with me at John chapter 2, and look at verse 11. The Bible says, "...this beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and manifested forth His glory..." And his disciples believed on him. 
You know, there are only four periods of miracles in the Bible. You know, people, sometimes people have the idea that, you know, there was a miracle every day in the Bible. And there wasn't. There were miracles in the time of Moses, Elijah and Elisha, then the time of Jesus and the apostles. That's, there are four specific periods of miracles in the Bible, and they were always for a specific purpose, and that was to verify the message that was coming from God. That was the purpose of those miracles. Um, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in a little bit more detail in a minute. But the purpose of the miracles, as identified here in John chapter 2, was to show the glory of Jesus Christ. That was the purpose of those miracles. Now, the thing about a miracle is, if it happens a lot, it wouldn't be a miracle. Right? And here's what guys like Dawkins say, that we are just ignorant, superstitious people who don't believe in the laws of nature and that we easily believe in a miracle. Well, how is that true? Can I tell you something? Joseph knew where babies came from. Right? That's why when they found out that Mary was with child, he was going to divorce her. He didn't immediately say, Shazam, it's a miracle. No, because he knew where babies came from. You see, in order to understand a miracle, you have to understand the laws of nature. If you don't understand the laws of nature, then you don't know when those laws of nature are being defied. That's what a miracle is. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, if resurrections happened all the time, you'd be talking about the amazing miracle of the resurrection, and someone said, well, my Uncle Joe resurrected two weeks ago. I've got to give the inheritance back. <laughs> it wouldn't be much of a miracle or much of a sign. And so the idea that Christians are just ignorant, superstitious, backward people is ridiculous. As we've seen over and over and over again, there are as many Christian scientists as there are non-Christian scientists. So the ability to do science has nothing to do with whether or not a person believes in God. Isn't that right? And so that's where that concept of truth is so important. Go to John chapter 3. And look at verse 2. So this is talking about Nicodemus. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. So apparently there was something different about Jesus Christ because he did miracles. And other people weren't doing miracles. You see? So this was an exceptional thing that pointed to the deity of Jesus Christ. Look at John chapter 7 and verse 31. And remember why the gospel of John was written. John 20, 31 says, But these were written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and believing you might have life through His name. So this is identifying miracles that He did that will help you believe. John chapter 7 and verse 31. And many of the people believed on him and said, When Christ cometh, will he do more miracles than these which this man hath done? So they knew that Christ would do miracles. What they didn't know was whether or not Jesus was the Christ. His miracles were authenticating the fact that he was the Messiah. Look at John chapter 9. This is such a cool passage, John chapter 9. This idea that people are gullible, that they easily believe in miracles at that time, this, this passage shows that not to be true. So look at John chapter 9 and 
What happened in this passage is that Jesus Christ heals a blind man, and there, there, a, a big discussion happens. Uh, look at verse 18. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him that had received his sight. So here's a blind guy that's healed. And the people don't believe, these Pharisees don't believe that he was healed. So they call his parents. And look at what it says. And they, verse 19, and they asked them, saying, Is this your son who ye say was born blind? How then doth he now see? Okay, well, they were skeptics. Can, can you see the tone of skepticism in the text? Now look at what it says. This is really fun. Verse 20, His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. By what means he now seeth, we know not. Or who hath opened his eyes, we know not. He is of age, ask him, he shall speak for himself. These words spake his parents, because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed, or had agreed already, that if any man did confess that he was the Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. All right, so remember, unbelief, it's not an intellectual problem. It's a spiritual problem. They decided beforehand that this was not the Christ. These religious leaders did. All right. So now, look what it says in verse 23. Therefore said his parents, he is of age, ask him. Then again, then again called they the man that was blind and said unto him, Give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner, speaking of Jesus. And I love the answer. He answered and said, whether he is a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. Isn't that awesome? I love that. Then it says this. He, he answered, or verse 26, Then said they to him again, What did he to thee? How opened he thine eyes? What was his process? Interesting. He answered them, I have told you already, and ye did not hear. Wherefore would ye hear it again? Will ye also be his disciples? See, this, this verse, I hope that you'll mark verse 27. This is one of the keys to dealing with a skeptic. All right? You can ask them when you're having a, a religious discussion. If I can demonstrate from you to a reasonable certainty that these things are true, will you believe in Jesus? If they say no, then there's no purpose in the conversation. All they're doing is attacking. They have no interest in the truth. And I love it that God gave this man boldness to say this to the disciples. Will you be his disciples? If I tell you again, will you be his disciples? Of course they wouldn't. Then they reviled him and said, Thou art his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spake unto Moses. How did they know God spake unto Moses? Because of his miracles because of what had done, happened in the Bible. As for this fellow, we know not from whence he is. The man answered and said unto them, Why, herein is a marvelous thing, that ye know not from whence he is, and yet he hath opened mine eyes. Now we know that God heareth not sinners, but if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. Now, this next verse, verse 32, is vital to our discussion. This concept that Christians, that believers in Jesus Christ are gullible and believe that miracles happen all the time. Look at this next verse. Since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was blind? If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. 
Isn't that a wonderful proof and evidence that people did not believe that blindness was healed constantly? And this, of course, was a promise. If you, We're not going to go there, but Isaiah 61.1, one of the promises of who the Messiah would be would be that He would open the eyes of the blind. And here Jesus Christ is accomplishing that miracle. Now go to chapter 11, John chapter 11. Look at verse 47. And this is evidence that miracles don't cause people, always cause people to believe. One of the things you know, in a debate, so if you watch a debate between, say, uh, Frank Turek and Christopher Hitchens, or William Lane Craig and uh, I think it was Michael Shermer, they ask this question of the Christian, what would cause you not to believe in Jesus Christ? And the answer is, if you could demonstrate the resurrection never happened. If you could prove the resurrection didn't happen, I wouldn't believe. And, of course, they can't. On the flip side, they ask the atheist, what would cause you to change your mind and believe? And they'll usually say something flippant like, if God wrote in the sky, um, Christopher, I am here. Well, the simple fact of the matter is, if that appeared in the sky, he'd come up with another reason not to believe. Right? And this passage demonstrates that. John chapter 11, look at verse 47. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and our nation. So what are they doing? Look down at verse 50. Nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the, and that the whole nation perish. So they're trying to make a political decision. If all the people believe on Jesus, then we as a, a Jewish nation won't exist anymore and the Romans will come and take our place. What they're saying is we'll lose our authority. It'll be better if this guy dies so that the nation can be preserved. Well, what would be better? If a whole nation turned to Jesus Christ or if certain individuals maintain their power? Because what they're saying is all of the people who are looking for the Messiah when they see what Jesus Christ does, they'll believe on Him. We have to stop Him. And here's the simple fact of the matter. If the Christian message was allowed to be spoken in the schools, if the Christian message was allowed to be spoken in the universities, if the Christian message was clearly proclaimed across the nation, then all would believe. We have to stop that. We can't allow intelligent design to be taught in the universities. We can't allow intelligent design to be taught in the schools. Now, let me be very careful about something here. We live in a conservative community. Amen? I'm very thankful for it. Uh, we have 23 school teachers that come to Grace Baptist Church. And I think most of you, if you taught in a lesson that creation took place, that you wouldn't have any flack at all. It would be just fine. You understand that's not the situation of most of the country. How many of you recognize that's not the situation of most of the country? You'll be fired. You'd lose your job. You, they, they won't allow it to happen. That's the country that we live in because people that hate God know that the evidence for Christianity is so profound that people will believe it, so they can't allow the evidence to be heard. Is that right? And that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. So let's go back and let's... let's kind of review where we've come from, all right? So the idea, does truth exist? And here's the premise. There are four questions that if the answers to these questions are yes, then Christianity is true. Number one, is truth knowable? Number two, does God exist? Number three, are miracles possible? And number four, is the New Testament reliable? 
And those are the things that we're establishing. So, what about truth? Well, we've established that truth exists because any statement against that proves it. So, if I make the statement, truth does not exist, the question is, is that true? Because if you believe it's true, then truth exists. Right? So, when you turn the argument back on itself, you you can't know the truth. Is that true? How do you know that that's true? All life is meaningless. Does that statement have meaning? If it has meaning, then meaning exists and truth exists. That was the first argument of David Hume, the the skeptic from the 1700s, that people today still rely on. He said that any statement about religion is meaningless. Well, is that statement about religion meaningless? See, what that does is anytime you try and make a truth claim that violates or denies truth, you can't help but affirm truth because you believe that statement is true or you would not make it then apparently truth does exist. What about God? What about God? Does God exist? I want to review some of the arguments. Last Sunday night, we looked at some arguments, and I know some of you weren't here for that. So the fact of the existence of truth and the existence of God inescapably point to the possibility of miracles. An argument that we looked at last Sunday night is the cosmological argument. Now, I know sometimes you start throwing these big terms out and people turn off. All it is, the word cosmological comes from the Greek word cosmos, which means the world. And so when you look at the world, the existence of the world, that points to the existence of God. Why? Because we know that matter cannot create itself. There is no such thing as a self-created being because it would have had to exist before it created itself. Does that make sense? How many of you, that, that makes sense. Right? Now, here's what I'm looking at out there. I know, really work with me. Try, to, try to, to, to think about this stuff, okay? So we know that the world had a beginning, and that beginning had to be self-existent, timeless, non-spatial, immaterial. Since he created time, space, and matter, he must be outside of time, space, and matter. In other words, he is without limits. And another word to describe that is infinite. Our God is infinite. Everyone believes that the world had to have a beginning, right? And it can't be the result of an infinite amount of processes because if it's an infinite amount of processes, then now would never have happened. There can't be an infinite number of moments in the past because today would never come. Does that make sense? How many of you get that? Right? And so we know that time had a beginning, matter had a beginning, and everything, the world that we know of had to have a beginning. What caused that beginning? There has to be a cause. And of course, we know that that cause has to be self-existent, timeless, non-spatial, immaterial. In other words, God. God. All right? Then, not only is He self-existent, timeless, but He has to be unimaginably powerful to create everything out of nothing. Unimaginably powerful then he has to also be personal. He has to be personal because he could choose to create. Uh, Immaterial forces, impersonal forces, do not choose. See, gravity right now is not choosing which of you to hold down. Right? Oh, there goes Joe. (laughs) That's, That's not the way it works. The laws of nature are not causes. 
uh, someone said the, the Newton's laws of motion don't cause the billiard balls to move. Some dude with a pool cue causes the billiard balls to move. Then Newton's laws of motion describe how they will move based on the forces that are imposed on them. But Newton's laws of motion have never caused anything to move. Those laws do not cause things. They describe things. Right? And so that means there was a time when those laws of nature were not in existence. So those laws of nature certainly could not have been the first cause. If there's no earth, if there's no world, if there's no natural world, the laws of nature could not be in force. And so something had to cause them. All right. Here's my trouble. Here's my problem. I mentioned this in Sunday school. On subjects like this, the problem is, how do you give enough information to make your argument valid, but not so much information that people want to, you know, put an ice pick in their eyeball or something? Okay. So we're going to try and keep you from doing that. If you see someone with an ice pick, tackle them. All right. And then personal, because he chose and non- personal forces do not have the ability to make choices. That's the cosmological argument. The, tele the teleological argument for the existence of God is this, that, that God is supremely intelligent since he designed life and the universe with, with such incredible complexity and precision. And he's also purposeful since he designed the many forms of life to live in this specific and ordered environment. Now, this is really important. There's just no chance, there's no chance for everything that you see to have happened by itself. It, can't, it, it cannot happen. And my favorite argument for this is the idea that if you're, if you're walking down the beach and you see written in the sand, Bobby was here. That's amazing. I wonder how the tides coming in and out, and the movement of the sand produced that message. Now, if you were standing to somebody and they, next to someone and they started saying that, you'd look at them and go, you've lost your mind. <laughs> Why? Because we know that messages require a mind. You can't have a message without a mind. You know, uh, alphabet soup. You pour the alphabet soup into the can and all of a sudden it spoils. This is not good for you. Would you be surprised if you saw that written there? Would you be? Because it can't happen. It can't happen. Someone would have to manipulate it in order for that to happen. Messages only come from minds. The Bible says in John 1.1, 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. The Bible says that He has spoken. And that he spoke everything into existence. And isn't it interesting? The Bible says we're made, we're created in his image. He's the word. And every cell of your body has a 3.1 billion letter word. The DNA code. Now let me ask you a question. We would be surprised to see a three word sentence. But we're not surprised to see a three billion letter word. You see, what happens is you have to have a religious, faith-based mindset that tells you that can happen by itself. 
The problem is that religious mindset is completely illogical and irrational because we know that messages come from mind. That's the theological, the teleological argument. Um, then the argument for morality, the argument from morality. Abs- God is absolutely morally pure. He is the unchangeable standard of morality by which all actions are measured. This standard includes infinite justice and infinite love. And we know that there are standards of morality. C.S. Lewis wrote this. This is really funny. He said, think of a country where people were admired for running away in battle. That's called Italy. No, I'm just kidding. Um, you heard about the guy that was German and Italian. He could attack and surrender at the same time. That's a... Now, look. He said, think of a country where people were admired for running away in battle or where a man felt proud of double-crossing all the people who had been kindest to him. You might as well try to imagine a country where two and two made five. You see, these are, these are consistent moral attributes of every society in the world. Now, have there been governmental systems that, that arose that violated those moral standards? Well, of course. But everyone knows they violated, they violated those moral standards. Where did those moral standards come from? And so the thinking is very simple. It be, it's, it's like this. Laws don't create themselves. You can't have legislation, legislation without a legislature. You can't have law without a lawgiver. So there is law. Therefore, there must be a lawgiver. Who is that lawgiver? What would he look like? Well, he would be what we have described, absolutely morally pure. He's un- his unchangeable standard of morality is known by all. And how is it that everyone knows that? Because according to Romans chapter 2, God's written his law on men's hearts. He is the one who gave man a conscience. People immediately know right from wrong, and they are disciplined in that way. Every culture is. So now... When you put these ideas together, that we have this God who is immaterial and all-powerful and all of these things, these creatures, the, the absolutely morally perfect, all of these attributes that we have described, that's the God that's described in the Bible. But notice this. We've discovered them all without ever looking at the Bible. And so what do we find? That the God of nature, the God that has revealed himself in nature and in logic. Now, I'm telling you, these atheists love to talk about logic, but these are also the materialists. How much does logic weigh? What is the material makeup of logic? It's immaterial. It's a law. And some people say, well, it's a concept, and we can have concepts. In what way? What is the mind? Is the mind simply your brain? It can't be. It can't be. And so these discussions, they all point to the God that is described in the Bible. And so when you look at the laws of logic and reason and the world that exists, it points to the God that has been revealed in Holy Scripture without ever having looked at the Scripture. That's called general revelation. God established the world so that we could know Him. And then the Bible tells us that's true in Romans chapter 1 that we can know who that God is. There's something else that we learn about this God, and that is that he must be the God of a theistic, that is, a, that, that a religion that would agree 
with reality must have a God who is personal and immaterial, all of the things that we've described, but he also has to be one. That's monotheism. So all the polytheistic religions, those who have many gods, they have to be false because there can only be one infinite creature. Because if you had more than one infinite creature, how would you distinguish them? One would have to have a characteristic that the other didn't. One would have to have something more or less than the other. That means one would no longer be infinite. Does that make sense? You can't subtract from infinity. It's complete. And that's what the Bible says about God. He is complete. He has all fullness. That's the God that we worship. So that demonstrates to us that Mormonism is false. They have many gods, so that can't be true. It doesn't it doesn't agree with reality. It doesn't agree with the laws agree with the laws of logic. It doesn't degree degree. It doesn't agree with reality as can be proven and seen, and it certainly doesn't agree with the Word of God. So when we establish all of these things, now we can go to the Word of God and we understand that God, that nature reveals, can be known personally. That's an amazing thing. So now, this God that exists, how would He communicate with us? And I love this. This is from Norman Geisler. He describes the King's Seal. The King's Seal. In the days before mass communications... When all long-distance messages were sent by hand, a king would place his seal on his message. Now, you all know what I'm talking about with that, right? He'd put some wax, and he'd have a seal, and that would go on the envelope or the piece of uh, the communication, the scroll. And if that seal was broken, then something had happened and it had been violated. And that seal, it describes something. This seal would be a sign to the recipient of the message that the message was authentic. It really came from the king and not from someone just posing as the king. Of course, to make this system work, the seal needed to be unusual, unique, easily recognizable, and it had to be something only the king possessed. We have a king like that. And what does he possess that no one else has? The ability to do miracles. It's an amazing thing when you put it all together that way. God used that system. Now, that system has been attacked, and I mentioned David Hume. David Hume was a philosopher in the 1700s who hated God, and he made some arguments. And let me tell you what Hume's basic argument was. All right. Basically, he said this, natural law is by definition a description of a regular occurrence. We'd agree with that, right? You drop a, you drop a brick and it's going to fall, right? So we would agree with that. He said, number two, a miracle is by definition a rare occurrence. We agree with that. Number three, the evidence for the regular is always greater than that for the rare. That's not true. We'll see that in a minute. He said, the evidence for the regular is always greater than that for the rare. Number four, a wise man always bases his belief on the greater evidence. Number five, therefore, a wise man should never believe in miracles. All right, so that's, that's his argument. Let's, let's answer it. If these four premises are true, then the conclusion necessarily follows, the wise man should never believe in miracles. 
Unfortunately for, for Hume and for those over the years who have believed him, the argument is, has a false premise. Premise three is not true. The evidence for the regular is not always greater than that for the rare. And we'll explain that. To disprove premise three, we only need to come up with one counter example, and we have many. So these are from these ways to defeat Hume are from Hume's own argument. And so this is where, again, all these arguments against God are self-defeating arguments. So this is fun. So remember, the, the evidence for the common must be greater, will always be greater than the evidence for the rare. Number one, the origin of the universe happened only once, which by definition is rare. It was rare, unrepeatable. It was a rare, unrepeatable event. Yet virtually every naturalist believes that the Big Bang evidence proves the universe exploded into being. That would be a rare occurrence. Number two, the origin of life happened only once. It too was a rare, unrepeatable event. Yet every naturalist believes that life arose spontaneously from non-life somewhere on earth or somewhere else in the universe. That would be a rare event. The origin of new life forms also happened only once. Those rare, unrepeatable events are nevertheless dogmatically believed by most naturalists who say it all happened by unobserved macro-evolutionary processes. In fact, the entire history of the world is comprised of rare, unrepeatable events. So here's a great example of that. David Hume's own birth happened only once, but he had no trouble believing it. It's interesting, isn't it? In every one of these counterexamples from Hume's own naturalistic worldview, his third premise must be disregarded or considered false. If Hume really believed in that premise, he would not have believed in his own birth or his own naturalistic worldview. Why? Because what he did was he confuses believability with possibility. What does that mean? Even if his premise is true that the evidence for the common is always greater than the evidence for the rare, it would not disprove the possibility of miracles. It would only question their believability. What are the chances of the earth, of our system existing at all? It would defy the laws of statistics or probability. But the simple fact is our world exists. That means a rare occurrence is very much believable. Right? So even if you personally witness, say, Jesus Christ rising from the dead as he predicted, Jesus predicted it and you believe it, if you were in the tomb, you verified the body was dead, and then you saw him get up and walk out of the tomb, Hume's argument says that you, a wise person, shouldn't believe it. There's something wrong with an argument that tells you to disbelieve what you have verified to be true. And this is the problem with Hume's arguments. Second, Hume confuses probability with evidence. Probability with evidence. He doesn't weigh the evidence for each rare event. Rather, he adds the evidence for all regular events and suggests that this somehow makes all rare events unworthy of belief. So he doesn't examine the rare occurrence. He says, this is what happens commonly, so this can't be true. And that, of course, is not reasonable. Um, this is flawed reasoning because there are many improbable, rare events in life that we believe when we have good evidence for them. So, for example, a hole-in-one is a rare event. Any golfers here? Anybody ever played golf? A hole-in-one is a rare event. For me, it's non-existent. 
okay? It's never happened. But I've seen it happen. I was at the memorial tournament for one of the practice sessions over in Dublin, and I saw Frank Nabilo hit a hole-in-one. It was really cool to see. I saw it. It happened, but it's very rare. So if I applied David Hume's principles to it, I'd have to say, based on the laws of probability, that didn't happen. I'm mistaken. You see, rare events do happen. Um, Oh, I like this one. How about this? Likewise, we certainly don't tell a lottery winner who beat 76 million to one odds that he's not going to get his money until he can win it five times in a row. And that's the idea of saying that something has to be repeatable. No, it can happen once. Technically, it's called a singularity. Now, go try and tell an atheist that there's no such thing as a singularity when they're all looking for that whole concept of string theory and one ultimate God particle that exists the reason, that, that, that proves why or explains why everything exists. Oh, yeah, except for God. Very interesting. They all believe in a singularity. So, a winning lottery ticket provides greater evidence than a certain personal improbably than that a certain person improbably won the lottery, no matter how regularly that person has failed to win in the past. What are we saying? The chances of a person winning they're they're so small, but it does happen, doesn't it? So let's all buy let's all go buy lottery tickets. No, that is not the point of my message. <laughs> The issue is because something is rare doesn't mean it's impossible. And so miracles are, by definition, possible. So the, the issue is not whether an event is regular or rare. The issue is whether we have good evidence for that event. We must weigh the evidence for the event in question, not add evidence from something else. Now, um, boy, there's so much more that we could go through. But it is obvious that miracles are possible. It is obvious that miracles are possible. Let me just run through one more thing with you. God has given us such wonderful information. How has God used miracles to confirm what He's doing? By raising Jesus Christ from the dead, He proved that He was God. Because, listen to what happened. The Pharisees came to Jesus and they said, Prove to us that you are God. And he said, destroy this temple, and I'll raise it up again in three days. And he said that the temple was his body. They killed him, and he rose from the dead in three days. What did that miracle do? It verified the message that he had already given. So the simple fact of the matter is, we know that truth exists. We know that God exists. And simply stated, if the God of the Bible exists, then miracles are possible. Isn't that wonderful? Do you know what the greatest miracle that ever happened was? The creation of the world. If he can do that, then walking on water is nothing. If he can create everything out of nothing, then having a man in the belly of a whale for three days and three nights is nothing. But do you know what the greatest miracle in the world to me is? That that God wanted to know me. That, the, that that God 
entered into his creation and took on a body like his creation and was willing to be spat upon and whipped and pierced, nailed to a cross so that he could save me. What a wonderful thing. The Bible says, and he is the propitiation. What is that? That's the satisfactory payment. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. Jesus Christ loved you so much. He loved you so much as your creator that he also became your savior and entered into time and space so that you could be with him in eternity. That's the God that we worship. To me, the greatest miracle that could ever happen was that that God, all-powerful, infinite, that God cares about Jim Alter. I am so insignificant. Think about the billions of people that are on this planet. The Bible says, What is man that thou art mindful of him? That's because our God is not only infinitely powerful, but He's infinitely loving. And He loves me with infinite love. Let me tell you something that's amazing. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. And there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. He loves you just as you are. But He also loves you enough to not leave you as you are. You see, remember, Jesus Christ didn't come into this world to make bad people good. He came into this world to make dead men live. And the Bible says that you and I are dead in trespasses and sins. But He has quickened us. He's made us alive through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But here's the deal. I doubt that every person in this room is spiritually alive. The way that you're made spiritually alive is by being born again. Remember biblical math. If you're born once, you die twice. But if you're born twice, you only die once. All of us are going to die. The Bible says it's appointed in a man once to die, and after this, the judgment. Unless Jesus Christ returns today, and he could, all of us will ultimately die. It's going to happen. That's why Jesus said you must be born again. And remember what he said, well, can I enter again into my mother's womb as a man? Can I do that? And all the ladies are glad that's not what he meant. What he meant was there has to be a spiritual birth. And that spiritual birth happens when you say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. And I deserve to go to hell and be judged. Because there is such a thing as justice. And because the wages of sin is death. And I'm a sinner. I deserve to go to hell. But Lord Jesus, you died on the cross to pay for my sin. Yeah, you died for everybody. But there's only one that accounts for me. You died for me. And I believe that you're the Son of God. Forgive me for my sin. Be my Savior. I know that you rose from the dead proving that you're God. And I can't save myself. You see, a lot of people, there are a lot of religious people out there who make a mistake. 
they think that salvation is a process. That is, if I start at a certain point and I start doing good things, that eventually I'll be good enough to go to heaven. I'll be good enough to have that salvation. No, the Bible says that salvation is a point in time. It's a point in time. How many of you ladies are glad that your baby's birth did not take 20 years? Are you thankful for that? That happens at a moment, at a moment. Being born again happens in a moment. There was a, there was a point in my life when I was lost. I was not saved. And then I trusted Christ as my Savior. And from that point on, I am saved and I have eternal life. I still need to grow in the Lord. There's things that I need to learn. I need to become more Christ-like. That's a process that will take place until Christ returns or I die. But from that moment in time on, I am His. I'm saved. I'm redeemed. I'm going to heaven. What an amazing miracle of God that is. Have you ever come to that point? I'm not asking if you believe in Jesus. I'm not asking if you believe in His resurrection. I'm asking if there was a point in time where that belief turned into an exchange where you give Him your sin and He gives you His righteousness. That happens at a point in time. Has that point in time ever happened for you? If it hasn't, you are on your way to hell. And there's a miracle that has to take place to change your direction. And that's the miracle of an infinite God choosing to give you His righteousness. Do you know what you have to do to make it yours? You receive it like a gift because there's nothing you can do to deserve it or to earn it. You just receive it. Have you received that gift? If you haven't, I hope you'll do it today. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father,